This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are speaking today with Christopher Busso, who is the author of Why Snap Works, A Political History and Defense of the Food Stamp Program, uh, out now from the University of California Press. Christopher, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Uh, so before we talk about the book, I wonder if you might introduce yourself, uh, tell folks a little bit about who you are and what it is that brought you to this project. Well, I'm a, a political scientist by training, and I am a professor of public policy and politics at Northeastern University in Boston. So I'm right in the city of Boston. I've been at Northeastern for far more years than I care to admit these days. Uh, <clears throat> and I started, I mean, I started out as a standard political scientist doing Congress, interest groups, political parties, and over time uh, migrated more toward policy questions and environmental policy and science technology policy. But in the last 15 years or so, food and politics, you know, food, food policy and politics. And this particular book, um, you know, Why SNAP Works, is its origin, it's sort of the origin story of any book is sort of funny. It's This book has origins in a previous book. I had a previous book on the politics of the farm bill that was called, uh, you know, um, uh, Framing the Farm Bill from 2017, <clears throat> University of Kansas Press, a uh, cheap plug. Um, and that book, I was intrigued by the politics of the 2014 farm bill and you know, why members of Congress members of the House from Kansas voted against it on the House floor. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, because I had been taught early on as a Congress scholar that, you know, no matter whatever else happened, you know, you know, if you were from a place like Kansas, you voted for the Farm Bill. So why did all four Republicans from Kansas vote against the Farm Bill? And it turned out it was because of SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So <clears throat> I looked at the, the centrality of the of SNAP, the food stamp program, which is what it was called to, until 2008, in holding together over 40 years and almost blowing up the farm bill, which it continues to play that role today. And that then led me to an interest in SNAP itself. How is it this program, and, and the central question that sort of guided the, the book that we're talking about is, 
how does how does SNAP survive <clears throat> after you know sixty years almost since the food, the Food Stamp Act in nineteen sixty four? How has SNAP survived to become the nation's most important food assistance program and one of its most important anti-poverty programs? You know, despite everything, SNAP survives, and that was sort of the central question I was asking in this book: Why? How was it? How has it endured so long despite everything? Despite the last. 30 years, arguably starting with Gingrich and Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the Congress in 1996, um, how has it survived you know, all, all of this sort of anti-welfare ethos um, to become as important as it is? Terrific. Uh, so before we turn our attention to that question, I wonder if we might start in, in the present and ask you to do just a little bit of, of blush brush clearing for folks who may not know. So what is tell us about the SNAP program. How, is it wor- how does it work? How is it funded? Uh, what are the benefits? What are the benefit levels? How do people use the benefits? What should we know just about the program in its current form? Current form of, I mean, SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and the important phrase is supplemental, is the nation's largest food assistance program. It used to be called food stamps. Um, and it, the way it works is, is pretty, and so roughly today, about 41 million Americans rely on SNAP to, to some extent to supplement their food purchasing power. And that's an important point because the benefit levels vary on, based on household income. Um, and so, you know, and, and so you could be working poor and get SNAP if you just have, a, if you have a large household and you just don't make much money. In fact, a lot of SNAP households are working households with children whose parents basically work minimum wage jobs to, and they just don't make enough money, um, you know, and, 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 and to cover things like rent, heat and food. So that's the whole point about SNAP, it's about SNAP, it's supplemental. Um, a huge portion of these households have children or the elderly, or disabled, and or. Um, so again, you know, the, the typical SNAP household, if there is one today, is maybe a working mother with children. You know, that's not, that's sort of, not, you know, it's, that's the typical household in some respects. Um, again, SNAP is roughly 41 million, covers roughly 41 million Americans today. You know, prior to the pandemic, it was roughly that same number. It spikes during the pandemic a bit, and then SNAP benefits also respond because SNAP is an entitlement program. And if there's more people who need the benefits, you know, spending grows unless Congress tries to limit spending, which it has not tried to do in decades. Um, so, you know, SNAP is very responsive to swings in the economy and swings in, in you know, employment and in income, you know, sort of very good anti-poverty uh, responsiveness compared to a lot of programs. Um, your benefits, if you are getting SNAP, are in the, come in the form of an amount of money put into an electronic benefit transfer card, EBT card, um, each month. And again, the amount of, of EBT, the amount of benefits you get depends on a, a very complicated uh, sort of set of uh, rules about household income, number of members of people in the household, you know, deductibles for rent, heat, an automobile to get to work, that kind of thing. But you get, you know, the money gets put in your EBT card to, for use at any grocery store or any food market that is enrolled in the program, which is most, about 250,000 of them, ranging from you know, Walmart all the way down to the local bodega. And you use your SNAP EBT card just like anybody using a debit card. And that's the important point is that when, when you're shopping using your EBT card, you are just like any other consumer. Um, and the only limits on what you can use on SNAP 
for food. I mean, you can't buy cigarettes, you cannot buy booze, despite urban legends. Um, you know, is you, there are, you cannot buy, use SNAP to buy hot prepared foods, for example. So you cannot go to Costco and use SNAP to buy the famous, you know, Costco rotisserie chicken, because that's a hot prepared food. Although you could use it to buy a frozen uh, cooked chicken, yeah, but not a hot prepared chicken. So there's, there's some debate about that these days. But for the most part, you can use your SNAP benefits to buy any food you want. And that's sort of the freedom as to act like a consumer. And that's sort of, from my view, one of the genius, genius elements of the SNAP program. So, you know, SNAP is a big program, $60 billion a year prior to the pandemic. I mean, spending went way up, $120 billion or so during the pandemic. It's only starting to come back down now. And partly the reason why it grew so much was Congress added on more benefits, the you know, pandemic EBT, that kind of stuff, and also expanded benefits. And also the Biden administration changed the benefits levels a bit when they redefined what was called the Thrifty Food uh, Program, which is sort of the baseline benefit level that it's based on USDA economists' estimations of what a family of four just near the poverty level would need for, to meet basic dietary needs. And it's not exactly a lot of money, but you know, again, it, it, it's they reevaluated it to, to make it more in line with how people actually live. You know, mom is not working at is not it is not mom is not at home cooking meals from scratch, which is what the thrifty food program was based on for like forty years, fifty years. In fact, you know, she's probably coming home from from work and whipping together whatever she can quickly. So you know, it's really based on reassessing how people actually live their lives today. So, and, and that re- reassessment of the Thrifty Food pro, uh, Program, um, uh, you know, changed SNAP benefits by about 20%, increased them by about 25, 20% roughly. So spending went up during the pandemic and with this re- reassessment of the benefit structure. So it's roughly, I forgot what the latest numbers are, but it's, it's still around $100 billion. And it's slowly coming down as employment has increased and, and, ben- and wages have increased. So that's where we are now. Terrific. So before we turn our uh, uh, attention to the question you raised about why it has been so resilient, um, I wonder if you would talk a little about the origins of the program and then maybe walk us through what you think the the key developments or battles about it over time have been. So where does the program come from? Come, it comes from like so much of U.S. federal policy. It has its origins in the Depression, in the New Deal. Um I mean, one of the great dilemmas of the of the of the Depression era was that you know you still had you had lots of hungry people, but you also had massive farm surpluses because farmers are tremendously productive, um, and unless there is a way to prevent them from doing so, they will keep producing as much food as they can on their land, um, you know, because that's what you do, you know, you, and unless you pay them not to, you know, you know, you know, and and so we had this the so-called paradox of want amidst plenty that they, as they phrased it during the, the depression, you had bread lines literally, um, and you had surplus food piling up. And one of the options that the Roosevelt administration first set out on to reduce the surplus and raise crop prices so that farmers could make a living was to start destroying food. Um, and you can imagine how that outraged people. Um, yeah. You know, well, idea, I mean, while people were literally going hungry. Exactly. And that outraged people that, you know, this notion that you're going to destroy food, most visibly animals, 
uh, but also pouring milk down the drain, burning burning crop piles of grain. I mean, there's literally they were destroying food while people were start were going hungry, and 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 so this was the great dilemma: how do you feed hungry people without and you know, and you know well actually the first one was how do you deal with the surplus that was the first dilemma they, you know is how do we deal with the surplus well if, if destroying food food was immoral um, well giving food away to people which is what they started doing you know literally the box of food that you might think of from a food pantry they would give they would the federal government would buy surplus commodities and then you know ship them to the state governments and the local the local uh, governments and they would have their food pantries very similar to what we think about today. Um, but there was a lot of disquiet about food pantries because of, of the box of food, because, well, the only thing that was in the box of food was whatever that was available. You know, and so there wasn't much choice involved. Sometimes you would get 30 pounds potatoes and that would be about it. Um, so, okay, the box of food, and that was also seen as, most important, the giving away surplus food created competition with local food retailers. Again, this is during the depression. So, you know, local food retailers were struggling because their customer base was struggling. You had, you know, and so, you know, here you have the federal government starting to give away food to poor people while local retailers are struggling to meet, to, to, to sustain a customer base. So you can imagine that the retail food industry was opposed to giving away food, you know, because they saw this as unfair competition. So, and there were a lot of other ways to try to figure this this dilemma dilemma, but it really starts with this notion that there's just too much food lying around while people are hungry. You know, it's how you, how you deal surplus. So, so finally, in the, uh, some some experts in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, actually federal government just generally, um, came up with an idea, and they were talking with people in the food industry, and they came up with essentially a voucher idea that we're going to you know we're going to enable low income households to purchase um, stamps. So, you know, say, you know, so I would spend $1 to buy what were essentially orange postage stamps. Almost they looked like postage stamps with those gloriously New Deal kind of icon on it. And for every dollar in orange stamps you bought, you would get 50 cents in free blue stamps. And you could take your orange stamps to any grocery store that was participating and exchange those orange stamps for any food in the store, just like just like any currency. If there was currency, the blue stamps then you could use to purchase foods that were declared in surplus by the U.S. government for that particular month. So if you walked into the store and you had food stamps that you would purchase from the local relief agency, um, and, and you were eligible to do so because you were on relief or some other kind of of of, of, of local or state you know sort of program. Uh, for the poor people, for poor people, so you walk in your local store, you could buy again the orange stamps for anything in the store, and then you could use your blue stamps to buy foods that were declared in surplus, such as, for example, I'm not kidding, if prunes were declared in, in surplus a particular month, you could use your blue stamp to purchase a box of prunes, but you purchase the same box of prunes that anybody else purchased using currency. The only difference in purchasing was the currency you used, regular currency or blue stamps, and that was the point was to enable, you know, to, to leverage the sort of normal channels of trade, as they were called, you know, food stores, to enable the U.S. government to get rid of surplus food more efficiently and to ensure that low-income people could purchase more food using these stamps. That was the idea. I mean, again, the first 
goal was to reduce the surplus. The second goal was to feed hungry people. Right. But kind of a clever solution. It was. It was very clever. Yeah. And in fact, that was, and in fact, it was wildly popular. What people don't realize was how popular the program proved with pretty much everybody, even the Chamber of Commerce of the United States, which typically opposed almost every other New Deal program, thought food stamps, supported food stamps, as long as the emphasis was on reducing surpluses. Because again, surpluses hurt farmers. And so, and, and, and the agricultural sector liked, liked them for that same reason. Um, everybody liked, in fact, uh, food stamps. You know, food retailers liked them because it increased their business. Uh, local governments liked them because they didn't have to store bunches of, of surplus food. Um, you know, social workers liked them because their, 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 their clients could act like regular customers in a food store. You know, the element of shaming. And we think today that the colored stamps might have shamed people. But during the Depression... You know, that was seen as you were you were going to go to the store like anybody else and use currency. What form of currency you were using, it didn't matter. But it was going to the store, not being in a bread line. And I think we forgot, we don't realize today how important that distinction was to people. So, you know, the, so the program was ran from 1939 to 1943, was very successful, but it was ended when the war essentially absorbed all the surplus. You know, people, it was, you know, full employment. We had to ship a lot of food to our allies and also to our soldiers. Um, and so most surpluses dried up. And with the end of surplus, the rationale for food stamps was seen to no longer exist. And so the program was terminated in 1943. So that's the origins. But what happens is after the war, you know, there's you know, pretty much full employment for a while. But then, you know, and, and, but there was a lot, there was a number of, you know, mostly urban, but not exclusively urban, uh, you know, members of Congress who thought food stamps were worth keeping because they saw it as a superior way to get food to those who needed it. They had saw how it worked. They thought it was a better way to do that than just, you know, having people go to the local relief agency for the, for the box of food. You know, or or some other way. I mean, they they thought of, that it sort of retained a sense of autonomy and dignity. And surpluses had disappeared, but hunger and poverty had not, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, and, and of course, in the post-war period, the focus was on how to absorb all these returning uh, soldiers, the you know, post-war growth, and so in the late from you know from the, the late forties, no one paid attention to poverty because you know they were fo- so focused on everything else. Surpluses start coming back in the nineteen fifties. In fact, they come roaring back in the 50s as farmers aided by new machines, new technologies, you know, everything. And as, you know, again, as the, as the loss, as foreign, as, you know, as, as, as Europe recovers from the war and their own agricultural sectors recover, you know, we basically start getting confronted again with surpluses, massive surpluses, expensive surpluses. Um, in fact, by the end of the 1950s, the cost to purchase and store surplus food, especially grain and dairy, was costing the U.S. government. It was like the third largest budget item in the U.S. government after the, you know, beyond the defense budget. You know, it was really expensive. So, you know, so you started seeing the 1950s a renewed effort in Congress by mostly urban Democrats to sort of bring back food stamps. You know, again to enable what they saw as pockets of of need especially in rural America, in Appalachia, but also urban areas. Lenora Sullivan from uh, St. Louis, member of Congress from St. Louis, you know, she was really focused on, you know, she had real pockets of, of hunger in her city as the great migration was coming up the Mississippi from the South. You know, these displaced agricultural workers in the South, because that's another story. Um, you know, so you have growing urban 
uh, pockets of urban uh, poverty and hunger in the north, you also had you know, real need in the south. You know, dis again, dislocated uh, tenant and farmers and sharecroppers. You know, mostly you know mostly black in the south. So you had real pockets of need. At the same time, that you had surpluses roaring back. Well, the Eisenhower administration did not want to bring back food stamps. They didn't think there was a depression on. It was sure there were pockets of need, but there was no depression. They thought the surplus commodity program would be the, the appropriate you know, way to deal with surpluses and to feed people who needed food, you know, the box of food uh, idea. Um, but Sullivan and other Democrats, largely Democrats, urban Democrats, um, began to really pound for bringing back food stamps, at least, at least to try them again. Um, and they finally leveraged their votes against rural conservatives. And this is the point where you start seeing this sort of interesting political story of uh, basically, you know, as rural political power begins to decline in the House, as the nation urbanizes and suburbanizes, those members of Congress who are needed, who want to sort of protect their commodity programs are increasingly going to need the votes of urban Democrats in particular. And urban Democrats begin to note their political power by saying, okay, you want your commodity programs, you want your cotton program, your wheat program, your corn program, et cetera, you're going to, have to do something about nutrition. Now, that really hits home in the 60s, but it begins in the 50s. And so they finally pass in 1959, a Congress finally passes a, a set of a, authorizes the US Department of Agriculture to do pilot programs for food stamps. Well, Eisenhower doesn't carry it out, but Kennedy does. Kennedy, who was appalled by the pockets of poverty he saw in Appalachia, especially West Virginia, when he was campaigning for president in 1960, and he was, you know, and he and he had voted in favor of food stamps. He got increasingly interested in food issues in the late 50s. You know, whether he's because he's running for president or because he actually profoundly cared is always a question of, of dispute. But it didn't matter when he becomes president. He basically takes essentially the, the authorization uh, on uh, the pilot programs and puts it, the pilot programs into effect. Um, and the pilot programs prove successful. Now, the new SNAP, the new food stamp program did not have the two sets of colored stamps. It turns out they weren't terribly effective in reducing the surplus. Um, but so instead of two sets of stamps, you just had currency coded stamps, $2, $4, $1, $2, $5, for example. And you got a, uh, you got, you, you still had to purchase stamps, you know, you, uh, and so basically if you bought a, a $10 with the stamps, you would get an additional $4 in free stamps. That was the idea of discount food purchasing through these stamps. And you would take the stamps to, um, you know, essentially to any participating food retailer and buy food. And again, there was again, there's no restrictions on what food you could buy, except there were restrictions on imported food, coffee, tea, and imported food. You know, so you, you couldn't buy imported Italian olive oil, but you could, you, know, you, could, you could buy, you know, corn oil in the United States. But the point was, is that, again, it was to bolster the food purchasing power of low income Americans by essentially discounting food via the retail marketplace. And that's how the food stamp program gets authorized in 1964 in the Food Stamp Act, which will be 60 years old next year. Um, and essentially, the story of the next you know 60 years basically is the is the is the evolution of that program, um, both in sort of how it works. We don't have stamps anymore; we have EBT cards. Um, 
we don't require people to purchase stamps anymore. It's essentially now it's essentially a, a income supplement based on your household income. Um, and it's done through EBT cards. But essentially the story of SNAP is that program rooted in depression and directed at surplus reduction now essentially is a, a food, you know, it's a supplementing food purchasing power, which has, again, sub, it has effects on the food industry. It's a $60 billion a year subsidy to the food system in a sense. Um, you know, does it reduce surpluses? Well, who knows? Not, not really. Because, you know, most food surpluses these days are these massive, you know, it's in dairy and corn and that kind of stuff. You know, people don't eat the corns. That corn, it's mostly that corn goes to, you know, cattle or ethanol. Um, but, you know, so you still have surpluses in dairy because that's a crazy area. So, you know, we still have, we still give away surplus cheese uh, to, you know, food pantries and stuff. But for the most part, you know, SNAP is a direct, you know, it, it provides supplemental nutrition assistance to individuals who need it, to households, but it also is a subsidy to the, to the essentially the food system. Yeah. And to local economies, correct? Oh, yeah, no. In fact, local governments love SNAP. That's the point is that it's seen as a multiplier effect. I mean, you know, if they're for every dollar SNAP purchasing uh, locally, roughly $1.60 in additional economic activity occurs. That's sort of, you know, USDA and other economists estimates. Um, and, and it's seen as an efficient program. I mean, it's you know, very low. Ever since the EBT card in particular, you know, the fraud rate is, you know, despite, again, you know, you know stories, you always get anecdotes. But despite anecdotes, USDA's examination of the program and others' examination of the program is that the fraud rate, now it gets this fraud, not error, the fraud rate is very low, 1% to 2%. Error rates are when the local governments or, or state governments miscalculate benefits, that's a different story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And and what we know about uh, 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 some, it's hard to quantify, but some good portion of that prod is, is its folks, uh, say, the young mothers you were talking around who need diapers, which you can't purchase with food stamps. So they cut a deal with the grocer or the store owner and, and you know, sort of the, wind up trading in their food stamps for some dollars worth of food stamps for 80 cents in cash, which they then use to purchase Diapers or formula yeah. or other I mean, there things. There is some right? of that. I mean, the USDA is not losing sleep over this. I mean, it's yeah. not. It's not very small numbers. It's it's a it's at the amount of absolute fraud. It, it, it doesn't worry. It doesn't bother USDA. It may bother other people, but it doesn't bother USDA in terms of the amount of money we're talking about. I mean, they're more concerned about error rates, or they're more concerned now about uh, people having their EBT their money swiped off the EBT card through through a theft. I mean, because you know it's skimming. 
So, you know, that's a big problem for, you know, and that Congress is trying to address that problem, you know. But, yeah, and that's the point is that it works pretty efficiently. The money is goes into your EBT card. You go, you can go shopping anywhere. And in fact, you can use it online now for authorized online retailers, Amazon and Walmart. You can imagine it like this a lot. Um, again, acting like a re- any normal sort of uh, consumer. So... Um... Let's go go back to the question you you uh, foregrounded earlier about about why why the program is still around, right? There it is it has changed. We've got F, we've got cutbacks in the Reagan year. We've got changes to the program under Clinton's welfare reform. We've had what we could argue are are fairly modest changes, but even those periods in which you know we we eliminate AFDC the, essentially, um, food stamps survive. So. Take us back to that. Why is the program so resilient and durable in well, our last I'll, few minutes? Let me use welfare reform as a good example. Yeah. You know, the 1996, 95, 96, you know, Gingrich and the Republicans, you know, take over, you know, the Republicans and Clinton, take yeah. the House and Clinton's president. And of course, we've seen the story afterward, you know, health reform effort, Clinton's health reform efforts during the backlash, and you get the Republicans take over Congress. Um, you know, you know, uh, the, you know, the House in particular uh, is the first time in 40 years. Um, and Gingrich is going to lead the, you know, the, the revolution. Clinton also is going, wants to reform, as he calls it, welfare. Everybody disliked AFDC, the old uh, uh, aid to families with dependent children. Um, because by the mid-1990s, AFDC pretty much only served the poorest of the poor. Um, and most of whom didn't work. And of course, as typified, and this is where the racialized dimension of it comes in, by you know black women, black mothers, single mothers, um, and so of course welfare reform becomes this sort of mission, and this is where Gingrich and Clinton collide over welfare reform. Republicans and Clinton collide, um, but in the process, you know, AFTC is eliminated, and in its place, we get the transitional assistance and needy families program. And, but what was interesting about that period was that there was an initial effort to take all the food programs and cre- and put them into a block grant, just like what they did with TANF. So TANF today, Transitional Assistance Need Family, is a it's a block grant to the states. But the block grant has been you know it has been sixteen billion dollars, you know since nineteen ninety seven. That's it's been locked in at sixteen billion. So you can imagine that the actual purchasing power of the TANF program is forty percent less than it was twenty five years ago. You know, so you know it's a block grant. And states very you know, you you would you know more than most having worked in this area, um, that TANF's effectiveness is, you know, you know, doubtful, you know, as an anti-poverty program. Yeah, I mean that's generous. Yeah. I mean it's and and because of the way that was structured, right, less and less of that money is actually going to poor people in need, but is going to other places in the state budget. Yeah, sort of like uh, volleyball courts in Mississippi, but we won't go there. Um yeah, I mean that and 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 nope and everybody recognizes the TANF is a broken system, but no one's right. going to touch it. But, so, but food stamps survives. Food stamps survive. And this is the important point. They wanted to transform all the food programs into a similar block grant, but there was there was blowback even among Republicans because the idea of doing this to food would remove any kind of federal guarantee that p- poor people would get an adequate diet. And that was a bridge too far for most, even for most Republicans, because they supported the support for TANF the, for, from, from eliminating AFDC 
and going to the, whatever welfare reform became, um, was predicated also on main, keeping food stamps as a as sort of a backstop, as a safety net. Even you know a lot of Republicans who supported eliminating AFDC stopped when it came to, to touching the food stamp program. Um, you know, because they worried that if they got rid of any safety net whatsoever, you'd be a race to the bottom among the states. So you you basically had, um, now there were major changes in, in, in food stamps in both in the f- Farm Bill of, 2000, of 1996 and also in what became TANF, what became TANF, because um, they, they changed all kinds of rules. They tightened it, you know, they eliminated a lot of eligibility which, by the way, were reversed in the, over the 10 years later, during the next 10 years, a lot under the George W. Bush, actually. So a lot of the restrictions put in place on TANF, uh, excuse me, on welfare reform that were put on food stamps, you know, they were, they were reversed later on. Because at the end of the day, people didn't want to go there. And this is the story about, uh, about SNAP. At the end of the day, it's about food. You know, and that's a simple equation here. People may not, the Americans may have some, you know, sort of cultural bias against, quote, welfare, close quote. Um, but at the end of the day, they also don't want to see fellow Americans go hungry, especially in a land of so much food. And, and so, so culturally, in some respects, food stamps is sort of a, you know, a minimum what we would provide for our fellow, you know, American, our fellow man, um, because we just don't think people should go without food. Although that having been said, the fact that it's not cash that can be used on other things also gives it some of that political strength. Yes. And that's the point. That's the thing about why AFDC, because we don't trust poor people to spend their cash wisely. And that was the whole point. AFDC was vulnerable because we don't trust poor people to use cash wisely. We, tr- we don't mind in-kind programs, vouchers, you know, Section 8, heating, heating programs. All, most of our social welfare system, as you know, is indirect. It's voucherized. Um, so food, you know, food stamp SNAP is essentially a voucher, except it's a more fungible voucher. It's for food. Um, but you can't use it for heat. You cannot use it for anything else, despite what people, you know. But we all know that money you're not spending on, on heat, because the money you're, you're, that you're not have to spend on food, you could spend on other things. So, it, you know, there's a, we all understand the sort of thin logic here. But it's a logic that people are willing to accept as, you know, as the cost of doing business. It's like, okay, we'll keep, we'll keep this system. And the EBT cards makes it a lot easier, obviously. We'll keep this system because, well, it works. It enables people to buy food. We can track it. We can watch for- you Cheap know, to administer. It's cheap to administer, remarkably. Um, and, you know, um, it has, I, it has I can, there are critiques about it that I have, um, but it works. And it's politically resilient because even conservatives can live with it. Now, they may want more work rules or restrictions on certain kinds of people because that's, you know, again, the two parties differ today on, you know, what rules should be applied to SNAP. But nobody except for the hardcore Freedom Caucus nihilist types um, thinks we should get rid of the program. And you do you think that that is more important as an explanation for its resilience than the 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 where 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 you talked about earlier? That's the 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 sort of the log rolling of of the farm bill in which you've got you know sort of rural agricultural subsidies and urban food stamp populations and well, that's everybody almost, votes for the bill because right. everybody gets a little something. Yeah, well, that still matters to some extent in the Congress, but not to the extent it used to. 
I would think. I didn't put that in the book, but have thought about it since is that, you know, how central is that log rolling, you know, the sort of you vote for my cotton subsidy, I'll vote for your. Because Congress guys. works so differently yeah. in the contemporary and, period. Well, yeah. And, and the reality is, is that the, the, the farm block in the House is so small now that they're so dependent on the support of everybody else for their commodity supports that, you know, the Democrats can basically say as a unified party, um, you know, if you don't, if the Republicans don't support SNAP, we're not going to support the farm bill. End of discussion. And it, and it won't get past the Senate. You know, so the practical politics still matter in terms of getting, you know, it, it through because it's, you know, SNAP is part of the farm bill, although it's still authorized separately under the Food Stamp Act. I, mean, I won't go too far in the weeds here. But at the end of the day, I think symbolically, because it's about food, that gives it a durability that I think makes it harder to eliminate than, than, than cash welfare uh, was easy to eliminate by, 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 by contrast. I mean, notice what happened to some of the pandemic supports they were, you know, that Congress did not reauthorize because, again, we didn't trust poor people to use their money wisely. Um, but when it comes to food stamps, SNAP, you know, we're more confident that they're gonna, it's going to go toward food. You know, you know, for the most part, that's true. Um, in our last couple of minutes, what what uh, what changes do you think could or should be made to the program to improve upon it? Well, from my view, uh, the, the wide variation state by state in how the states implement the program, I would like to see some federal preemption of that. I mean, you know, part of the deal during welfare reform in the 1990s was giving states a lot of leeway in how they implemented the program. Yeah, I mean, the federal government decides benefit levels and has broad eligibility standards. Uh, but states get to, this, you know, the states are where the, the rubber meets the road on, on, on SNAP implementation. And some states make it really, you know, some states really go out of their way to try to enroll everybody who's eligible because um, they see that as, you know, free federal money and it, they think it has good impacts on local economies and on old nutrition too. Uh, some states like Wyoming make it very difficult. I mean, you know, you, in some states you have to, you know, you can apply online. Other states you can't. Um, states have different rules for how frequently you have to renew your your um, your, your your benefits. Uh, some states try to implement uh, fingerprinting and drug testing, and you know, you know, famously or infamously, states like Wisconsin under Scott Walker would implement all kinds of restrictions on on, on SNAP recipients, which didn't work. You know, they except to reduce you know, you know enrollment levels, but you know, and, and but the odd part about it was the that since the money since the program is paid for by the federal government, it wasn't clear if the states were saving any money because it's actually more expensive. The states have to pay half the administrative costs, so it was more expensive the states to sort of crack down on enrollment, you know, and to do other things uh, than to simply maximize enrollment. So there was sort of a, it's an odd politics here. So I would make SNAP implementation much more. Um, a, you know, streamlined and much more consistent across the country. I, I don't think where you live should determine how well you can, you know, how much, you know, how how much access you have to food. I think that yeah, morally wrong. Also, I think we should bring Puerto Rico back into the program. It was in the program until um, the nineteen until Reagan, basically. It was in the program. Was in the snap. Puerto Rico would, you know, again, Puerto Ricans are Americans, and even even if you live on the island, as opposed to New York or Philadelphia. And very high rates of poverty. Exactly. But if you, the oddity is if you're Puerto Rican and you're living in Orlando, you're eligible for food stamps. If you're Puerto Rican and living in Puerto Rico, you're not. 
So it, there's, it's, 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 and so Puerto Rico has its own program that's essentially a block grant, which is totally inadequate. And everybody agrees on, you know, a lot of people agree on it. And I think Puerto Rico should be brought back into the food stamp and SNAP program uh, uh, auspices uh, because they're Americans too, last I checked. Um, yeah, but, uh, and also, and, and some of the restrictions, I mean, you could argue that, again, not being able to use SNAP dollars to buy soap or diapers is sort of silly. But, yeah, I'm not going to die on that hill as much as some of the other ones, you know, you know, because I get the politics. The politics is food and that gives the, and the food industry, therefore, will support it. As long as the food industry supports it, that's a huge political um, sort of uh, asset for defenders of SNAP. You're listening to the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Christopher Vasso about his new book, Why SNAP Works, a political history and defense of the food stamp program from the University of California Press. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me.